recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and it's Chris Degeni here on Talk Show. It is Friday, August 9th, 2011. I sent out a mailing this, this afternoon on my mailing list that Chris Degeni New Testament has, um, it is now available in soft cover. It, it's a lot less money than a hardcover, of course. And um, I would have sent the mailing out a week ago if it weren't for the – well, I had planned on sending it out Monday, but I had a server crash. And restoring, I think including WilliamFink.net, it's 19 websites and, and three data spaces and, and the streaming radio station and the TeamSpeak chat server. That, that took me every bit of three days to restore all that. And, and it's finished, and we've lost um, – Hardly any data, practically no data from the websites, which put our way for that. I mean, it, we, we may have lost a forum post or two, but aside from that, we didn't lose anything. So, so I'm grateful for that. And, and that was my week. Tomorrow night, I'll be here with, um, with Mike Delaney from ProSync.org, and we'll be ta- talking about a little something different for me. We'll be talking about 9-11. And, and um, I was talking to Mike on the chat server the other day and, and um, wondered out loud what I was going to do for a program, and it was his suggestion. So, so um, I thought it might be a good idea and a little change. So for, for me, anyway, it's a change. And, and um, Mike appeared on Republic Radio last night talking to Rick Adams about 9-11, and, and tomorrow night you, you could get to hear it without the incessant advertisements. It's nice to have places like Republic Radio and, and um, opportunities to go there, but but it's um, the ads are incredible, right? It, it's just you, you can't get a word in edgewise as soon as you try to go below below the surface on any particular topic, you're caught up in advertisements and, and it's futile. That, that's the way I felt about it when I appeared there a couple of weeks ago with Dina Spingola. Okay, we've been talking about um. The Gospel of Matthew, which, which we've been covering here for, uh, I don't know, it must be 18 weeks now, and, and we're getting near the end of it. I'm not trying to rush it, but, but it's um, it, it, it's been a long time with Matthew, but that's okay because I plan on doing all four Gospels, hopefully this winter and, and spring to come. I think it'll probably take me that long. I'm going to do some of the minor prophets in between time. After Matthew, I plan on, on spending... Um, some time with the prophecy of Malachi, and I also plan, perhaps after I cover the Gospel of Mark at length, to um, to, to go into the prophecy of Zechariah, what which really needs to be done. That there's a lot to say about Zechariah. Okay, this is um, Matthew chapter 27. Last week, among many other things that were evidenced while discussing that. Matthew chapter 26, we saw from the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 a direct connection between the 30 silver pieces for which Christ was betrayed to his enemies and the breaking of the covenant which Yahweh made with the people, the people of Israel, of course. This is found in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 10 through 13, where it says, And I, meaning Yahweh, took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people. 
and it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And Yahweh said unto me, meaning Zechariah, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. Yahweh himself is saying that he was priced at 30 pieces of silver. He is Yahshua Christ. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. While it was discussed in brief here last week, Zechariah chapter 11 itself really requires a full study, and, and I won't do that here presently. Hopefully I'll do it in the near future. Because of ambiguities and because of differences in the Masoretic text as it compares with the Septuagint version, Furthermore, the Breton's translation of the Septuagint Greek of Zechariah, especially chapter 11, I find wanting, and, and at least can contest it in various places. So, so it needs a fuller treatment. Yet all of the versions, the Septuagint and Masoretic text, agree on this one thing, that the covenant that Yahweh had made with the people was broken, and that the 30 pieces of silver are connected to the act of breaking the covenant. Now, it can be asserted and proven that the old covenant which Yahweh made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, beginning with Exodus chapter 19, was a covenant equivalent to a marriage contract between Yahweh and Israel, with God as the husband and the entire nation of the body of the children of Israel as the bride, collectively. That this is a proper interpretation of scriptures evidenced in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, the epistles of Paul, and many other places. That old covenant, being eternal, as we're told, and within the laws of marriage set forth by God himself, the only way that it could be broken was with the death of either the husband or the wife. Since Yahweh promised, that a new covenant would be made with Israel, with the wife, and with Judah. For instance, as we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31, and again we can see it in Ezekiel chapters 34 or 37, that would also necessitate the breaking of the old covenant, as Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 8, where he quotes from Jeremiah. So we see that the fulfillment of the old covenant, which is its completion, and that is the meaning of the Greek word that the King James Version often translates as fulfillment, the fulfillment took place on the cross of Christ, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, that the wife is released from the law upon the death of the husband. And that way, the wife doesn't have to die for her adultery, because she can't be judged by the law. Before we begin with Matthew chapter 27, let's recall the words of Matthew, which he attributed to the Judeans in chapter 26, where he wrote in verse 3, At that time the high priests and the elders of the people gathered together in the court of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they took counsel that was guile, they shall seize and kill 
Yahshua. But they said, not on a feast, in order that there would not be a tumult among the people. Yet, we will see later here in this chapter, that when Christ stood before Pilate, that Pilate feared a tumult of the Judeans if they were not able to crucify him. Quite the opposite of the sentiment that Matthew attributes to the Judeans at the opening of chapter 26. The population of Jerusalem at this time, which can be gleaned from information in the pages of Josephus, it must have been around 2 million people. Yet, even if it were really half of that, this was the Passover. And as we can see in Acts chapter 2 and elsewhere, there were men from every nation gathered at Jerusalem for the Pentecost. They would also have been there for the Passover and perhaps in even greater numbers. The law required all of those who kept it to appear at Jerusalem at the temple three times a year at Passover, at Pentecost, and again at the Day of Atonement. This meant that a considerable amount of people were gathered in Jerusalem from the surrounding regions, and perhaps from other places across the Mediterranean. These would consist of the dispersed Judeans of contemporary times, the Hellenistic period, where a lot of the Judeans did spread out through Hellenistic Greece and throughout the Roman Empire. And, and we see that all over in, the, in, in the, the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul. It would also have included the descendants of some of the people of the earlier Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah, some of whom never left Mesopotamia in the early centuries of the Israelite dispersion. Instead, they continued in the ancient faith and they stayed in and around Babylonia and and. The, the land of Assyria. That, that's evident from the, from the apocryphal books and from history. That not all of them left. Therefore, even tens of thousands of followers of Christ, and it appears that he indeed had quite a few at this time, would still have been obscured by the great throngs of people gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover festivities and, of course, to the large population of the city in the first place. Many of those people were from outside of Judea, and they would have never heard of Christ. And I believe that Paul of Tarsus probably fits into that category. Like New York City on a holiday, the Jews could have gotten away with practically anything in such a circus atmosphere. But they were still concerned of a tumult among the people which shows that their deeds were unrighteous. And with that, we'll commence with Matthew, chapter 27. Verse 1, And it being early, morning, and all the high priests and the elders of the people had taken counsel against Yahshua for how to kill him. And having bound him, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, Pilate the governor. I won't use Pilatus here. That, that's the original Greek form. With the rise of Herod the Edomite, that this is a long time before Christ, right? We're going back to 36 BC. The, the, the Herod whom the Jews like to call the Great, 
Judea was a kingdom over which the Romans had appointed Herod as king. A king, while still subservient to Rome, had the power of life and death over his own subjects. Herod used that power quite liberally, as the historian Josephus attests. After Herod the Great died, his son Herod Archelaus was very cruel, and eventually the Romans had deposed him, I think around 9 AD. They banished him, and they reduced Judea to the status of a province, and they set tetrarchs over it. The word tetrarch is actually a Greek word, and it means the ruler of a quarter or a fourth. The tetrarchs each ruled the portion of the first Herod's former kingdom. Upon Judea's losing its status as a kingdom, the Romans also placed a procurator or prefect, as they're sometimes called, over the province. And that official was responsible for trying capital offenses. Since the leaders of a province did not have the same right which the kings had. By law, Roman citizens could only be punished for crimes after they exhausted their right of appeal to the emperor. Paul was able to appeal to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. Because he was born in Tarsus in Colicia. Christ, being born in Judea, and not being a Roman citizen, had no such right of appeal under Roman law. And therefore, he was at the mercy of the Roman governor and whatever influence that the leaders and people of the province had with the governor. For this reason, the Jews of today try to persuade us that Rome was responsible for the death of Christ. However, this is not true. And both the Judeans of the time of Christ and the apostles laid the blame on certain elements among the Judeans themselves. They themselves are responsible for the murder of Christ, for the death of Christ. Peter is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, as having said, He, meaning Christ, He, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, was surrendered, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. He's talking in general to the people of Judea. The people of Judea as a whole were responsible for the slaying of Christ. And there are many reasons for that. The nation bears the guilt. However, the slaying was executed through lawless hands, meaning those of the leaders who have plotted against Christ. It is clear from the gospel accounts that Pilate did not want to see Christ executed. But in his official capacity and due to the political pressure of the Jews, he had little choice but to accede to the desires of the leaders of the Judeans. Verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, meaning Christ, feeling regret, turned the thirty silver pieces over to the high priest and the elders, saying, I have erred, having betrayed innocent blood. But they said, what is it to us? You'll see. 
and casting the silver pieces into the temple, he departed, and having gone off, he hanged himself. We're told that Judas Iscariot was a devil. We're told that by Christ himself in John 6.70, where it says, Yahshua replied to them, Have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a devil or a false accuser? Then John, writing his gospel, makes a parenthetical statement and states, Now he spoke about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was going to betray him, being one of the twelve. People often ask, how could a devil feel regret? James tells us in chapter 2 of his epistle that you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe it, and they shudder. Even Judas must have heard, at some time or other, Deuteronomy 27:25, which says, Cursed is he whosoever shall have taken a bribe to slay an innocent man. And the people shall say, so be it. Therefore, it is very likely that Judas felt not as much regret for Christ as he did for himself, and how he may be punished in his life after it became known by all of the followers of Christ that he was indeed the betrayer of Christ. He would have suffered that Deuteronomy 27-25 curse. For Judas was certainly a witness of the adulation for Christ which was held by many of the common people, such as what transpired when Christ rode into Jerusalem on an ass only a few days before Judas betrayed him. And many of the people sought to make Christ their king at that moment, which is an act of sedition against Rome. If Christ had gone along with it, he did not. But it shows how Christ was loved by many of the people, and they had their expectation in him. A lot of commentators see conflict between this account in Matthew that Judas had hung himself and where it says in Acts, and I quote, that he, meaning Judas, acquired a field from the wages of unrighteousness, and having been crashed face down in the midst, in the midst of the field, then all of his bowels had spilled out. The Jews and other disputers and false accusers love to make a sport out of using passages such as these to prey on the minds of the weak and the innocent. Yet there is no conflict here if we see that the testimony if we see the testimony of the gospel for what it is. Various writers recording only certain parts of a much larger account. They recorded those parts which each of them as individuals had either witnessed or heard and later recalled and thought worthy of message, or worthy of mention when they wrote the account, when they put it to paper. If Judas hung himself, which he must have done according to Matthew, then later on his body could easily have been dumped into that same field 
which the money of his betrayal had purchased. So both accounts, the account in Matthew and the account in Acts, may very easily be accepted as truth, and there is no reason to doubt either of them. One of them is talking about the death of Judas. The other one is talking about what happened to his body, perhaps days after he died, right? Verse 6. But the high priest, taking the silver pieces, said, It is not lawful to cast these into the temple offering, since it is payment for blood. Then, taking counsel, they decided to buy them with the to, to buy with them the field of the potter for a burial place for visitors, on which account that field is called the field of blood unto this day. And likewise, the next verse in Acts, the one after it describes Judas being cast down in the field, the next verse in Acts, Acts one nineteen, says of that same field, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So as that field is called in their language. Akeldamak, which is field of blood. Luke being a Greek, the words in their language are natural to him since Acts was written in Greek, right? Now, there's one Greek word in this passage which the Christianian New Testament translates as visitor. I'd like to talk about that word for a minute. That word is xenos, X-E-N-O-S in English. In the King James Version, it is always translated as stranger. But the word does not refer to a stranger as an alien or someone of another race, as we're often led to believe that is a lie. We also perceive that word to mean an alien or someone of another race when we see so-called English words such as xenophobia, right, which is misused. To the Greeks, a xenos is an outsider who has the expectation of hospitality by law or treaty or custom. Therefore, and I'll cite an example from modern literature, David Kovacs, who is a professional academic from Virginia, he's a college professor in the classics, When he translated the writings of Euripides, and he did so in um, over the last 10 years, actually, within the last 10 years, when he translated the writings of Euripides, the ancient Greek tragic poet, for the Loeb Classical Library at Harvard University, he translated the same word, which appears quite often in Euripides' work. He translated it as guest friend, everywhere it appears. And so it is visitor in the Christian New Testament in this instance. Often it is simply guest. As it has already been explained, the city, meaning Jerusalem, being visited by multitudes of people from all over the empire and beyond. And with the laws of the Judeans requiring a quick burial for the dead, regardless of where they were from. It is more evident that there would always be use for such a field they would need to bury these outsiders in, these guests. 
So that explains why they would need that field. Jerusalem had found perhaps tens of thousands of people from outside and um, at every feast, and, and I'm sure that um, quite often they suffered tragedy, right? Matthew 27, verse 9. Then that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty silver pieces, the value of he being valued, who was valued by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the field of the potter, just as Yahweh prescribed for me and Endizam, me being the quote, being Zechariah here, or, or being the person being valued, depending on how it's read, which would be Christ. But Yahweh, in, in, in the words of Zechariah, intones to us that it is himself being valued, and that makes perfect sense because he is Christ come in the flesh. Now, why Matthew attributes a statement that was made in Zechariah. And he attributes, he attributes it to Jeremiah. I cannot explain that convincingly with the copies of Scripture that we presently have. I don't think it can be explained with the copies of Scripture that we have presently. It is always possible that there are missing or corrupt passages of Scripture which are common to both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. And the Dead Sea Scrolls in this, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are wanting most of Jeremiah, so it cannot be a referee here, right? It can't help us here. Jeremiah did buy a field, and that's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 32. But these words which Matthew quotes clearly belong in the book of Zechariah, and Zechariah was written at a much later time than Jeremiah was written. They appear in Jeremiah chapter 11, and I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 11, as I've quoted today and last week, covering Matthew 26, and they do not appear in Jeremiah as we know it. Furthermore, the field which Jeremiah bought, Jeremiah is described as having bought the field in Jeremiah chapter 32. That field was purchased for 17 shekels and 30, as we see in the passage in Zechariah, concerning the 30 pieces of silver thrown to the potter. In the Septuagint, and, and let me say that in the Septuagint, chapter 32 is really a chapter 39, because the order of the chapters for the book are different. In the Septuagint, the Greek says, seven shekels and ten of silver. And, and we would translate that in English as 17 shekels of silver. But the way the Greek wording is, it's very difficult to confuse the 17 for 30, because of the way it is written. The Greeks write 30 with one word, right? Not seven shekels and ten, which would be three words, seven and ten. 
So, so it's impossible to confuse. It, it's not a mere translator error, in other words. It, it's impossible to con- confuse one word meaning 30 for three words, 7 and 10. That's, that's a huge difference, right? Many commentators also link this passage quoted by Matthew here. They link it to Jeremiah chapter 19, where the prophet is told to take an earthen bottle from a potter and smash it in front of the people of Jerusalem as a sign that the city would be destroyed and, like the bottle, never be made whole again. Then they refer to verses 11 and 12, and I will quote 11 and 12 of Jeremiah 19, where it says, And, and you, Jeremiah, shall say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Even so will I break this people in this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again, and shall bury them in Tophet, till there be no place to bury. In other words, till they run out of room, right? Thus will I do unto this place, saith Yahweh, and to the inhabitants thereof, and make this city as Tophet. Now Josephus describes the slaughter of people at Jerusalem by the time the city fell in 70 AD to the Romans as being well over a million people who died of disease, who died from their own violence, or who died from the hands of the Romans. In addition to the over a million people who supposedly died at the the, um, Roman conquest of Jerusalem, over 100,000 survivors were taken captive. So surely many fields around the city must have been used as burial places. Yet it seems that this scripture must draw our attention to the field which Jeremiah bought at Anatoth. And therefore, we will read and comment on Jeremiah chapter 32. And I don't think that Jerusalem is made like Tophet. Uh, I mean, the first 70 AD was pretty bad. It was a pretty bad carnage, as described by Josephus. But I don't think Jerusalem will be like Tophet until the second coming of Christ and until Obadiah 18 and Malachi 1.4 are fulfilled. So here I will take an aside and read Jeremiah chapter 32, and we will see what the connection is, and we will see what it is not, right? The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, that would be the first year of Nebuchadnezzar being 506 B.C. That would be about 48, four, I'm, I'm sorry, 606 B.C. That would be about 588 B.C., right? For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So perhaps this was sort of like a, a castle dungeon, right? For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore does thou prophesy and say, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. So Zedekiah didn't believe Jeremiah and locked him up for what he said, even though he was only repeating the words of God. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith Yahweh. 
Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not prosper. And Jeremiah said, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Now it should be mentioned here that Shalom, the name of Jeremiah's uncle, means retribution, and Hanamiel, the name of Jeremiah's first cousin, means God is gracious. Jeremiah 32, chapter, verse 8, I'm sorry. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of Yahweh, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anatoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for myself, buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. In other words, when we see something ahead of time and it happens, then we know it's from God. We also see here an example of kinsman redemption. And perhaps our attention is also being drawn to that, or being drawn to this chapter for that reason when we read Matthew 27. Verse 9. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anatoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. 17 shekels rather than the 30, which would make interpretations of this passage much easier. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, who was Jeremiah's scribe, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase, or properly, the scroll of the purchase, meaning the deed, before all the Judeans that sat on the court, And in the court of the prison, in other words, there were many other prisoners along with Jeremiah, evidently. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. Pottery. At this time, pottery jars were used to preserve paper, as the Dead Sea Scrolls were also found in pottery jars. Verse 15, For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And that's a promise of future deliverance and an ultimate return of the people of Israel to the favor of Yahweh and to the ancient land but it hasn't happened yet. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto Yahweh, saying, O Yahweh God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands 
and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of the children after them. The great, the mighty God, Yahweh of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are opened upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So we see in Jeremiah here, in relation to Jeremiah's buying his field, a promise of deliverance and a promise of justice. Who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, among the other men, and has made thee a name as at this day, and has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with outstretched arms, and with great terror, or fear, or awe, and has given them this land, which thou didst wear to their fathers to give to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, and they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in my law. They have done nothing of all that thou commanded them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts they are come unto the city to take it, meaning the cavalry of the Babylonians. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it. Because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence, and what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Yahweh God, buy thee the field for money, and take witnesses. For the city is given, to, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then came the word of Yahweh unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? In other words, Jeremiah is wondering why he should buy this field if the city is about to be taken. There's no point. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will give the city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on the city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal, and poured out drink offerings unto the other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith Yahweh. For the city has been to, unto me as a provocation of mine anger, and of my fury from the day that they built it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they were done, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Note that very often those are two different things, right? when they should always be the same. And they have turned unto me their back, and not their face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile, to defile it, and they built the high places of Baal, 
which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's the um, the valley of the son of Hinnom is where we get Gehenna from, which actually means land of Henna or Hinnom. To cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And now, therefore, thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have, whither to where I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and, and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So we see again that a new covenant, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 8, a new covenant necessitates the passing of the old covenant. That I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Yeah, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith Yahweh, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Well, that good hasn't been done yet. Right? And the field shall be bought in this land, whereof you say, it is desolate without man or beast, it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields, for money, and subscribe evidences, and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the city of Judah, and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, saith Yahweh. Jeremiah 32. I believe that the lesson in Jeremiah's being told to buy the field is revealed in the last verses of this chapter. The fields that men buy with money and all of the plans that they have for them cannot endure outside of the will of God. Jeremiah was told to buy the field even though the land was clearly going to be delivered to the Babylonians. And most of the inhabitants would be taken away or driven off from it. So Jeremiah's purchase of the land was in vain, I believe, as an example for us. Because the closing verses of Jeremiah chapter 32 show that the children of Israel do have a promise that they will indeed possess that land, a promise assured but not yet fulfilled. And here in the Gospel, we see that the blood money for Christ also bought a field in Jerusalem, or near Jerusalem. The blood of Judas's enemy was then spilled on that field, and the day comes when the promises of Obadiah and Malachi 1-4 shall be fulfilled, and all the blood of his enemies shall be spilled 
on that field because they possess it, but he owns it and he is coming to take it back. So Jeremiah bought a field in Jerusalem and Jeremiah was its rightful owner, even though the field was destined for the hands of his enemies. And the blood money for Christ bought a field and he was the rightful king, but Jerusalem was also destined to be delivered into the hands of his enemies. Christ suffered many things that the children of Israel over their history had also endured for their disobedience, a token that he was indeed the bearer of their sin. But this is the only correlation that I could find in these two passages, the passage in Matthew and the passage in Jeremiah. I don't think the correlation is direct, but as I hope to have explained, it may be symbolic. Why else? Matthew would quote Zechariah and then tell us it was Jeremiah is beyond me. I don't think that Matthew was wrong. He either meant something that he read in the text, which we don't see, and that could be because of the bad translations, the corrupt manuscripts, or for several other reasons. Maybe it's just missing. Or he wanted to turn our attention to Jeremiah 32 for another reason. And that may also be difficult to see. But that's really the only correlation I could find with those passages. Matthew 27, verse 11. Then Yahshua stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? So Yahshua is before Pilate. The word which we used here, I believe is hegemon, or Matthew used here, I believe is hegemon. I don't have it in front of me. But it's not the word for proconsul. The word for proconsul is hupatos. And this word is not hupatos. This word is hegemonis which means he who has the hegemony, but which is often translated governor and always in my translations. Then Yahshua stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? So we see what the, um, what the accusation was that the Jews made to Pilate about Christ, right? And Yahshua said to him, You say, And to that which had been brought as an accusation against him by the high priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate says to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he, meaning Christ, did not reply to him with even one word, so for the governor to wonder exceedingly. First, as it is written in Isaiah 53.7, as I quoted last week in reference to Matthew chapter 26, and the trial of Christ in the court, the illegal trial of Christ in the court of the high priest in the middle of the night. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before, her she- before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. When we compare the gospel accounts of the trials of Christ, 
we see that the Judeans did not enter into the praetorium or the judgment hall, as it is sometimes called in the King James Version. Rather, the Judeans remained outside. And John 18, verse 28 says, Then they brought Yahshua from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, and they did not enter into the praetorium, that they would not be defiled, but may eat the Passover, which would be that following night, right? As Yahshua would not answer the high priests concerning the charges against him, as we've seen described in Matthew chapter 26, once again, Christ made no reply before Pilate concerning the charges made against him by the Judeans. And that was in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.7. Yet, Yahshua did have a conversation with Pilate, and John describes that, but Matthew does not. However, the conversation was not before his accuser in reference to answering the charges directly as a witness. Rather, Yahshua spoke to Pilate when Pilate brought Christ into the praetorium, as we see in the Gospel of John. The word praetorium is a word used of the governor's residence, and it was also the word used of the residence of Caesar in Rome. The King James translates it judgment hall and, and, and several other ways. The Gospel accounts all tell different aspects of the trials and the crucifixion of Christ. And we must bear in mind that the disciples were already scattered at this time. We read at Matthew 26, chapter 26, verse 56, of the events the very night before this, and we read that all the students leaving him fled. Peter followed along, as it is recorded in Matthew, and we learn from the Gospel of John that John was also with Peter. Matthew didn't know that, obviously, or he didn't feel it important enough to record. In the Gospel of John, we have a more complete account of what transpired between Christ and Pilate. In the Gospel of Luke, and only in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that Pilate had sent Christ to Herod at one point. And when Herod did not surrender him to the and, and, and did not surrender him to the desires of the Judeans until Herod had sent Christ back to Pilate, right? So from each writer, from each gospel writer, we see differing aspects of the events of that day. And we see that surely because no writer recorded the events completely. No writer witnessed the events completely. And surely each writer had different perspectives on the events which were formed from the things that they had both saw for themselves and the things that they heard from others. None of these accounts really conflict. And none of these accounts 
can be proven to be false. Simply because they're different does not make them false. They are all merely different because each writer had a different knowledge or placed a different emphasis on the various things which occurred that day because he had a different vision and a different perspective of it. Very simple. Matthew 27, verse 15. At each feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner for the crowd, whom they desired. And they had at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, upon their convening, Pilate said to them, Whom do you wish that I shall release for you, Barabbas or Yahshua, who is called the Christ? Now notice that Matthew said here, upon their convening. Matthew doesn't record it, but we see in the Gospel of Luke that Pilate had sent Christ to Herod, right? And here in Matthew, all the Judeans were already convened outside the Praetorium. And here Matthew says, upon their convening. So Matthew wrote, at the, in verse 14, and he did not reply to him, meaning Christ did not reply to Pilate, with even one word, so for the governor to wonder exceedingly. Right? Now in verse 15 and 16 and 17, Matthew says, and each feast the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner for the crowd whom they desired. And they had at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, upon their convening, meaning upon their gathering to meet. So we see in the language of Matthew that there's a clear break between Matthew 27:14 and the event which began in Matthew's description at 27:15, Because that happened upon their convening. Well, they were already convened in 14. So we see from the language of Matthew that after 2714, Christ goes into the Prohitorium at Pilate's beckoning, and they talk. And that must have been when, as we see in the Gospel of Luke, Christ was sent to Herod. And Matthew didn't record any of that. And then here he has, upon their convening, as if they just got together. So Matthew may not have seen any of that, or he just didn't feel it important enough to mention. But here the words, upon their convening, to me, indicate that this is when Christ stands before Pilate the second time, after Herod sends him back. So we could put the Gospel accounts together, And they would make perfect sense. Yahshua, who was called the Christ, 
That's what Pilate called him. The disciples of Christ knew right from the beginning that Yahshua was the promised Messiah. As we see in John chapter 1 verse 41, where Andrew exclaims as much, without having ever been told, he exclaims that they had seen the Christ, who is the Messiah. He exclaims that to Simon Peter, his brother, right? And we also see it in several other places in Scripture, such as that John chapter 4, where the woman at the well exclaims that the Messiah was to come, and Yahshua admitted to her right there, he admitted to her being that Messiah, to his being. He admitted to her that he was that Messiah. And we also see it in the exclamation of Peter, which first appears in Matthew chapter 16, although that's rather late already, right? These reports and many others that Christ was the Messiah, or that Yahshua was the Christ, I should say, these reports and many others must have been extant throughout Judea, and Pilate must have been fully informed of them, and that the, the accounts concerned this Yahshua who stood before them this day. Now, I have to make a note about um, Barabbas. Barabbas was released to the people as their own wish, and that is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's evident in Mark 15 chapters, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 15, verse 6, and it's explained more fully in John chapter 18, verse 39, that on account of a certain custom in Judea, one criminal was granted release and a stay of execution in this manner each year at a feast. And it must be said here, that Wesley Swift wrote a lot of strange things about Barabbas, and I have no idea where he may have gotten them from, but I've been questioned about this often, and I have to answer it now that I'm here talking about Barabbas. It's clear in the Gospel account that Barabbas was a robber. That's mentioned in John 18.40. It's also clear in the Gospel account that Barabbas was being held in prison for sedition and murder. That's in Mark 15.4 and Luke 23.18. And let me say that prison in, in these ancient times was not a punishment by itself. Men were in prison only because their fate was being determined. They were in prison usually because they were going to be executed. And that's why Barabbas was in prison. He was awaiting his execution. So it is very clear in the scripture, Mark, Luke, and John, that Barabbas was a robber, and he was in prison for sedition and murder, and that's the way the apostles describe him. Yet, contrary to the plain statements in the gospel, Wesley Swift made Barabbas out to be some captain of some great Essene army, a military leader and a servant of Christ, and I personally think that this is Wesley Swift's 
one of his greatest, that this is one of Wesley Swift's greatest lapses of judgment. And I will leave it at that, except for the comment that none of Swift's statements concerning Barabbas can be substantiated from any true original history that I am aware of. And, and Swift even went so far as dressing Barabbas's supposed army up in blue tunics decorated with golden fishes. And yes, it's on the, in Wesley Swift's papers, and I've read it. And, and that's um, unfortunate, but, but Swift went there, and, and um, I think it's a novel, and I have to say so. Barabbas was a thief and a robber, as the Gospel clearly states, and this too is symbolic of the children of Israel, that Christ died on behalf of the sinful people so that those sinful people may live. Matthew 27, verse 18. We have a parenthetical statement here that Matthew makes. For he knew, meaning Pilate, that on account of jealousy, they, meaning the high priest, handed him over, meaning Yahshua Christ. This statement is corroborated in Mark chapter 15, verse 11, where it's practically repeated word for word. The envy which the high priest had for Christ is expressed in John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48, and I will quote, Then the high priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we do, seeing that this man, Christ, makes many signs? If we should leave him thusly, they shall all believe in him. And the Romans shall come, and they shall take away both our place and our nation. Well, evidently, Pilate knew that Christ was, that Yahshua was called the Christ, which in Greek, and Pilate would have easily known this, right, meant the anointed one. And so, Pilate must have also known that Christ had a great following. And that the high priests and these other leaders and, and people of Judea were envious of him for that reason. Yet it is also evident that Pilate himself, being a Roman official, never openly perceived Joshua Christ as a threat to Roman governance, and therefore even Pilate sought to release him. At Luke chapter 23, verse 2, we see this. Then they began accusing him, saying, We have found him perverting our nation and preventing giving tribute tax to Caesar and saying of himself to be the anointed king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? And replying, he said to him, So you say. Then Pilate said to the high priests and the crowds, I find not any guilt in this man. But they were more strongly saying that he agitates the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, even beginning from Galilee as far as here, meaning Jerusalem. As it was also evident in Matthew chapter 26, Yahshua had Pilate state that he was the king of the Judeans, where he replies to a question with the words, so you say. Pilate certainly would have realized that Christ was doing that with his answer. His answer is a statement and not an answer to a question. 
But Pilate was evidently not threatened or offended by it. And so he did not see it as a direct challenge to Roman authority, which would have been a capital offense. But the Jews, the Judeans, were pushing that issue, right? Matthew 27, verse 19. Then with his sitting upon the step, his wife sent to him, saying, Nothing with you in that righteous man. I know that's a difficult statement, right? For today I experienced many things in a dream on account of him. This account only appears here in Matthew. The words, nothing with you in that righteous man, is my plainly literal translation of the Greek, and there is not a word added to it. And I admit that that's clumsy at times. The actual meaning is, you must not have anything to do with that righteous man. I would have to add several words in, in English to, to, to come to that conclusion, but that's the meaning of the words. In other words, Pilate's wife had a dream, and due to the dream, she had attempted to persuade Pilate to release Yahshua. And, and we only learned this from Matthew, right? And I can't really comment on it any further. Verse 20. But the high priests and the elders persuaded the crowds that they should request Barabbas and that they should destroy Yahshua. So here we see that the Sadducees, which is the sect which the high priests belong to, and, and we could tell that from Acts chapter chapters 4 and 5 and from the history of Josephus, right? We noted they're Sadducees. The Sadducees had agitated for the deaths of Christ when Pilate was seeking to release him. This is evident in all the Gospels. This guilt upon the Judeans is compounded in Matthew chapter 25. I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 25, which we're not up to yet, right? Where it says, his blood is upon us and our children. As we have seen in the parable of the fig tree, as it was told in Luke chapter 13, where the fig tree clearly represents Jerusalem in the ministry of Christ. And as we have seen with the cursing of the fig tree described in Matthew chapter 21, which would be withered forever, right? Which would never have fruit again. There can never be any good fruit from the people of Jerusalem which also represents all those in Judea who never converted to Christianity, those people who rejected Christ. And here they say, his, that they say and, and we see that the high priests and the elders persuaded the crowds that they should re request Barabbas and that they should destroy Christ, the crowds going along with it, later exclaim, his blood is upon us and upon our children. Serious words in the ancient world when people meant what they said and took words seriously. Here I would like to read from Luke chapter 19 from verse 11. Then adding a parable, he spoke for those hearing these things. Because he was near to Jerusalem, 
And they were supposing that immediately the kingdom of Yahweh was going to appear. Therefore he said, A certain man of noble birth had gone to a distant land to receive a kingdom for himself and to return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave to them ten minors and said to them, Engage yourselves in business while I go. And his students, I'm sorry, and his citizens hated him. And they sent ambassadors after him, saying, We do not want him to rule over us, the citizens of the kingdom he was supposed to receive, right? Then it came to pass upon his return from receiving the kingdom that he had said to call for him the servants, those to whom he gave the money, that he would know what they did while engaged in business. And the first came, saying, Master, your miner has earned ten minors. And he said to him, Very well, good servant, because you have been faithful with the least, you must have authority over ten cities. And the second had come, saying, Master, your miner has made five minors. So he then said to him, And you must be over five cities. And another had come, saying, Master, your miner, behold, your miner which was kept hidden in a handkerchief. For I was in fear of you, because you were a harsh man. You take that which you have not laid up, and you harvest that which you have not sown. And he said to him, From your mouth I shall judge you, wicked servant, because you had known that I am a harsh man, taking that which I have not laid up, and harvesting that which I have not sown. Yet for what reason did you not give my money to the bank, the coming I would exact it with interest? And to those present he said, Take the miner from him, and give it to him, having the ten miners. And they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. And the response is, I say to you that all having shall be given, but from he not having, even that which he has shall be taken away. But my enemies, those who do not want me to rule over them, You bring them here and slay them before me. And speaking these things, he went forward going up to Jerusalem. Now, there are several things going on in this parable at the same time, right? Yet it is clear that those of us who are servants of Christ, of those of us who desire to be the servants of Christ, some will do well and receive great rewards. And some will not do so well and receive little or no reward. This idea is commensurate with Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that would be the servant list, no minus, right? Yet those who rejected Christ altogether... It's already too late for them. It was too late for them from the beginning. When John the Baptist was baptizing, he proclaimed that the axe is already laid to the roots of the tree. They are already appointed to die, having rejected Christ as their king. Therefore, he says, but my enemies, those who would not want me to rule over them, you bring them here and slay them before me. Such is the ultimate fate of the Jews.
Matthew 27, verse 21. And replying, the governor said to them, Which from the two do you wish that I shall release for you? Pilate asked on several occasions, hoping that they would say, Christ. (laughs) Then they said, Barabbas. Pilate also says to them, Then what shall I do with Yahshua, who is called the Christ? They all say, He must be crucified. Then Pilate said, For what evil has he done? But they cried out excessively, saying, He must be crucified. So John recorded their words in his gospel at John chapter 19, verse 15. Then they cried out, Kill, kill, crucify him. Pilate says to them, Shall I crucify your king? The high priest replied, We have no king but Caesar. Christ himself never directly claimed to be king, and even though he could claim the title, he did not. However, the Judeans accused him of claiming it, which would be an act of sedition against Rome. Here, Pilate apparently mocks the Judeans, saying, Shall I crucify your king? Seemingly accepting their claim that Christ was indeed their king, but he's apparently to me mocking them. We saw above at verse 11 that the Judeans had made the accusation that Christ claimed to be the king of Judea, but that Pilate understood it to be a false charge. Again, there could be no good fruit from Jerusalem ever. The people known as Jews today, all of them, they all have the blood of Christ upon them by the declaration of their own ancestors. They all bear the guilt of deicide, the murder of God. Matthew 27, verse 24. And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, in other words, he tried to persuade them not to kill the Christ, but they just insisted on doing it, And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, taking water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent from the blood of this man. You see to it. In other words, he laid all the guilt upon the Jews, the Judeans who rejected Christ, the people that we know as Jews today. And responding, all the people said, his blood is upon us and upon our children. Period. They accepted full responsibility for their crime, right there. They could never put it on anybody else. Then they released Barabbas for them. But having scourged Christ, Yahshua, he handed him over in order that he would be crucified. If Pilate had not relented, and a riot happened in the city that day, where there were tens of thousands of outsiders gathered for the feast, in addition to the million or two million inhabitants, Pilate would have had to answer to Caesar against all the accusations of the Jews. That would have been a situation that Pilate could not have won. Since the life of one man, a man who was not a Roman, 
who really didn't matter to the emperor one bit, was simply not esteemed in contrast to the peace, and, and yes, I'm saying this sarcastically, to the peace imposed by Roman tyranny. John chapter 19, verse 12, records a threat which the Judeans made against Pilate, that if he did not accede to their wishes, they said as follows, from this point, Pilate sought to release him, but the Judeans cried out, saying, if you should not release this man, I'm sorry, if you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself king speaks in opposition to Caesar. Except for the ten senatorial provinces of the empire, all of the other provinces were considered to be imperial provinces. The governors of these provinces, which includes Pilate, right, were, were appointed directly by the emperor. And at the time, the emperor was Tiberius Caesar. The phrase, friend of Caesar, represented a political designation in Rome. And the emperors gave their friends such appointments as governor of the province. And those appointments were often very lucrative. The Judeans here are actually making a veiled threat that if Pilate did not accede to their wishes, that they would begin to, con to accuse him to the emperor of betraying the trust of the emperor. In fact, the same thing did indeed happen to Pilate a short time later. And Josephus, the historian, describes in the 18th book of his Antiquities that it was actually due to an embassy of the Samaritans and not an embassy of the Judeans. Pilate was ordered to go to Rome to face Tiberius for certain accusations arising from when he put down the sedition of Samaritans but never had to face charges because Tiberius died before Pilate arrived in Rome. According to Josephus, Pilate had been in Judea for 10 years. Reading Josephus' antiquities, it was constant among the Judeans to send embassies to Rome to complain about their rulers. They did it all the time. The sons of Herod even went to Caesar in Rome in order to complain about Herod, their own father. So the threat to Pilate was very real, that if you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself king speaks in opposition to Caesar. That's a threat that if, if Pilate insists on releasing Christ, that the, that the Judeans are going to start accusing him to Caesar. Pilate, looking at his own career and comparing that to the cost of one life that is seemingly only coincidental, right, on the surface, one man in Judea who was, wasn't even a Roman citizen, what is it to a governor to let one man go to his death at the wishes of the countrymen of that man, of the rulers of that, of, of that nation, and to spare himself the political troubles gained by upsetting them. 
So Pilate made the only decision that he could by turning Christ over to the Jews, basically. Nearly 30 years later, another procurator of Judea, Felix, as the book of Acts says at 2427, desiring to bestow a favor upon the Judeans, left Paul in bonds when he left office. He left Paul locked up in the prison. Felix evidently did so because he was leaving Judea because the Judeans of Caesarea had an accusation against him that he had to answer before Caesar Nero. And according to Josephus in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Felix only escaped punishment from Nero because of the influence of his brother, Pallas, who was a very influential man with Nero. So we see that Felix was in trouble from the Jews of Caesarea, and that's why he let Paul in bonds, hoping that they would give him a break, right? But they didn't. Because Jews don't give anybody a break. And, and, if, and, and if you tick them off, they're going to make false accusations of you constantly until they get you for something. That's what Jews do. That is why the word diabolos is applied to these people constantly throughout the Bible. Judas is called a diabolos. A diabolos is a devil. Diabolos, in Greek, basically infers the casting of false accusations. That's why in the Christogenian New Testament, wherever you see devil in the King James Version, I have written false accuser, because that's literally what it is. And we await this day when the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Okay, that's the first half of Matthew chapter 27. I thank you for listening tonight, and I will be back here next week with the, hopefully, the second half of Matthew chapter 27, Yahweh willing. I will be here tomorrow night with Mike Delaney of ProSync.org, and we will be talking about 9-11. Imagine that. Tomorrow's only 9-10, but that's close enough. Praise Yahweh. Good night. I hope to see you here tomorrow. Thank you.